You're listening to a sermon from Leewood Baptist Church. For more information about us, visit our website at leewoodbaptist.com. This morning here in John chapter 19, we're going to be covering a familiar narrative in Scripture. Even if you are not a Christian, if you are maybe even anti-Christian and you're here this morning, you've heard of this. This symbol that we're going to talk about this morning is probably the most famous symbol in world history. It's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, many of us, we know this. We could probably sit down. I even thought about this. We won't do this, but we could sit down and turn to someone sitting close to us, and we could easily share the details of the crucifixion, and you could probably do a better job of that than me. So when we hear the crucifixion account, the narrative of it, it is easy for us to get caught up in the physical pain that Jesus endured, which was a very brutal way to die on a cross by the means of crucifixion. We can get caught up in the drama of this narrative, or maybe it's so familiar for us it really doesn't affect us anymore. But this morning, as we cover this and we walk through this together, I want us, together as a faith family, to understand that everything that we are about as a church, everything that you in your life, if you're a believer in Christ, revolves around this event, and if you are not a believer, this event took place for you. So let's not lose the significance of this. It'd be very easy for us to walk out of here this morning and just think, okay, well, we just heard another account of the crucifixion of Christ and leave here and it not really change anything. But what we're about to see here in John chapter 19 changed history. We'll talk about this in in just a second. This historically happened. But even greater than just the historical reality of this, the spiritual reality of the cross affects us in more ways than we'll ever be able to comprehend. What we are about as a church revolves around about this. Nothing else honestly really matters. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, nothing else in your life matters. Not your possessions, not your family not anything else, those, those are good, those, though those are good things, our entire reality as people of God revolve around what happened here in John chapter 19. And so as we walk through this passage together, we need to understand that. We need to understand the importance of that. And not lose the significance of it. So let's look at John chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in the pew in front of you. You can take that Bible and turn to page 591. If you don't own a Bible, that is our church's gift to you. And so we'd like for you to take that with you. So let's look at John chapter 19 and verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. 
The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and clothed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping his face. Pilate went outside and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Here's the man. When the chief priests and temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourself, since I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Then Pilate heard this statement. He was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Who would have, you would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. But the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Then Pilate heard these words. He brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the stone pavement, but in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover. It was about noon. Then he told the Jews, here is your king. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief, chief priest answered. Then he handed him over to be crucified. What we see here is the historic reality what took place. There is historic accounts, many historic proof that Pontius Pilate existed. He was the governor of that region of Israel. His job was to basically make sure that there was not a rebellion that would rise up against the Roman Empire. So now poor Pilate finds himself in the middle of absolute chaos. All of a sudden, he's in, he's in the middle of what he feels like perhaps someone trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. The chief priests and the religious leaders of, the day, of that day, yes, they are accusing Jesus of calling himself the Son of God, but they're also playing dirty politics. They're basically saying Jesus is making himself a king, so if he's making himself a king, he's shaking his fist at Caesar, so he needs to be executed for challenging the Roman Empire. So now Pilate is in a really sticky situation. At the beginning of this chapter, we see that they flogged Jesus, they whipped him, they beat him, they put a crown of thorns on him, they slapped him, they, they made fun of him, they called him the hail, they, they, they said, hail, king of the Jews. If we had time, we could go to the rest of the Gospels and see that account, but we don't have time for that this morning. The Gospel accounts are offer different perspectives on the same event, but 
Here in this first couple of verses, we see just a small piece of what Jesus endured under Pilate. Pilate's thinking, maybe if I just beat him enough, mock him enough, that perhaps that will satisfy them and then this will just all go away. The Bible tells us they pulled the beard out of his face, they spit on him, they mock him, they belittle him, they do everything they can possibly think of to shame him. Jesus would have been stripped naked and they're trying to remove every sense of dignity that he might have had. So Jesus brings them out. Pilate, uh, Pilate brings Jesus out, and he's hoping that perhaps this will just pacify the crowd. It doesn't. They want him crucified. So finally, Pilate says, there's nothing I can do about this. You crucify him. And so they did. So let's keep going. Let's look at verse 17. Then they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which, is, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign. Because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened at the scripture might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So now what we see here is that Jesus is led up to a spot there just outside the city of Jerusalem where crucifixions would have taken place. He takes the cross with him, and Pilate has a sign made and put it on the cross. In reading this, we might ask ourselves, what is the significance of this sign? See, often when someone was, was executed, especially by crucifixion, they would put the crime that they had committed on top of the cross. They would nail it as a sign so when people walked by, they'd say, okay, this 
person committed this crime. So if someone had murdered someone, they would say they murdered somebody. Or if they had um, tried, to try to, tried to start a revolt against the Roman Empire, they would probably put treason up there. Well, Jesus, Pilate, couldn't really find any grounds to legally justify crucifying him. So he put on there, as it says, verse 21, the king of the Jews. Well, the chief priests, of course, they're not just happy with having Jesus murdered. They want to fight the, the details on this. And so they fight the details, and they told Pilate, said, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate, you can almost sense the frustration in verse 22, can't you? Where he says, I've written what I've written. So then the soldiers they crucified Jesus. They took his clothes. They divided them into four parts. They took the, the tunic or almost like a robe that was on him. It was one, was one piece, and they basically cast lots. They gambled it, but they gambled for it. But what we see here that Renee even read for us in Psalm 22, that fulfilled scripture. Psalm 22, verse 18, they divided my clothes among themselves. They, they cast lots for my clothing. So here we still, we see that there's prophecy written thousand years before Jesus is even being fulfilled on the cross. So we see even more dots being connected. We see Jesus' care for his mother, and then Jesus, right before he dies, he's thirsty, which was... Obviously, uh, you can, we can imagine why. There was a jar of bad wine sitting there. They fill it. They put it on a branch. Jesus drinks it. And this even fulfilled scripture. This fulfilled scripture out of Psalm 69, verse 21. And more scripture is fulfilled. More prophecies fulfilled. But then in verse 30... We have the most profound statement in all of Scripture, and I would strongly argue all of human history, that it's said. See, we know as Americans, we know great speeches, right? We know the speech by Martin Luther King Jr., I Had a Dream. We think of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. We think of John F. Kennedy's speech of ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And those are great speeches. But Jesus gives a profound three-word statement, and he says, it is finished. Then he bowed his head, and then this is key. Look at the very end of verse 30. He gave up his spirit. They did not take his spirit, but even in this moment as Jesus dies, we see his sovereignty. We see his absolute control. In this moment of chaos, of dirty play, of as we saw last week in John 18, a mistrial, all of this, Jesus is in absolute control, and nothing as sovereign God happens outside of his control. So even in this moment of this death, as he's hanging on a cross, naked, his dignity has been stripped of him. Jesus is in control, and he gives up his spirit. 
But Jesus says, it is finished. Now, this is a profound statement, and I'm going to break all kinds of preaching rules right now. Because in seminary, they tell you not to bring the Hebrew and the Greek into sermon, into sermons, so I'm just going to stick my tongue out at my preaching professor right now. And I want to teach you a Greek word this morning. It's tetelestai. Say that with me. Tetelestai. Say it one more time. Tetelestai. So now when you're at lunch today, you can brag about that you know some Greek. All right? This word tetelestai means it is finished. We have archaeologists have found papyra receipts for taxes that on those tax receipts, if maybe it was property tax or whatever, they wrote the, don't get me started on property taxes, <laughs> papyri receipts for taxes, and they've been recovered, and on it, it was written across tetelestai. Written across does mean it is finished, or even more literally, paid in full. So this words, these three words that Jesus says, it is finished, John wrote this in Greek, so tetelestai, Jesus is saying it is finished, it is paid in full, the bill has been taken care of. So when we really begin to break down this, this phrase of it is finished, it, we could spend hours picking this apart and parsing it. But Jesus says, first, it is finished. So what was finished? What had wrapped up? We've talked about this last week, the redemptive plan, the redemptive plan that God had put into motion since the beginning of time to redeem humanity back to himself. Hold your finger here in John 19 and turn over to Genesis 3. God even alluded to this. I mentioned this passage last week, but I want us to see it. God even alluded something to Adam and Eve when they had sinned in the garden. See, we each have a desire to go back to Eden, that, that world that was perfect. There was no sickness, no disease, no sin, no war, none of it. But Adam and Eve thought they knew better than God, and so they ate of the fruit and disobeyed God. And so then because of it, we as a human race are cursed by sin. It's in our DNA, and we inherited it from our great, 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 grandparents, Adam and Eve. We can't help it. You and I can't help but sin. And so here in Genesis 3, the Satan in the form of a serpent had tempted Eve to eat of the fruit. And then so in verse 14, look at it. So this is after this disobedience had taken place. And God says, so the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility, hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So here we see the first messianic prophecy in scripture. So even in Adam and Eve's sin that we each have inherited, 
We see God saying this is going to happen. So God uses, and we see this all throughout Old Testament, God uses his covenant people Israel to bring about the Messiah, to bring about Jesus, and Jesus dies. And so when Jesus dies and he gives up his spirit and he says, it is finished, this plan that God put into place, that is now finished, that is wrapped up. But then we go deeper and we consider the Greek word testelestai, meaning paid in full. What was paid in full? Our debt. The debt of humanity, the debt that we each bear because of our sin is now paid in full. Think about it. If you have a mortgage, you have a mortgage and all of a sudden you show up to the bank to pay your mortgage payment, wouldn't this be nice? For, all that, for those of us with mortgage payments, you show up to the bank getting ready to, to, to pay your mortgage payment. Of course, I do it online. But if you went to the bank <laughs> and you paid it and you showed up to the bank and said, no, your debt's paid in full. Can you imagine that? You are debt free. If you have student loan debt and you're getting ready to pay off your student loans and all of a sudden you get a letter in the mail and you, found, you learned that someone paid your student loan debt in full. It's paid off. More than a mortgage or student loan debt, we each are greatly indebted. We deserve to be spiritually foreclosed on, and Jesus paid our spiritual debt. That should have been us on the cross paying that debt ourselves, but he did it himself. Now, you might sit here and think, What happened on the cross? You see, Jesus, as he was on the cross, all the sins of mankind, past, present, and future, were placed upon him. The wrath of God was brought upon him. And God the Father, as other gospel accounts says, turned his face away. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in that moment, God the Father looked at God the Son and all the sins of the world, your sin, my sin, was on Jesus and God the Father, because of his holiness, couldn't even look at it. But if we're not careful, we could have this idea, think that was a very cruel thing of God the Father to do. What a cruel thing for God the Father to place his wrath upon his Son to die for the sins of the world. Now, if that thought creeps into our minds, let's remember right now, yes, this was violent, yes, this was cruel, but this was not abusive. The idea that God the Father is committing some kind of divine child abuse, and that that is being taught today. That is a lie straight from Satan. It's a lie. Don't don't listen to that whisper. Don't listen to that lie. Because that's a direct attack on the Trinity. Because we need to understand that Jesus is God on the cross. Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, he, as God, was taking his own wrath upon sin upon himself. So this is, not a, this is not an act of divine child abuse, faith, family. This is an act of divine love. That God would take his own wrath of sin upon himself. And so Jesus says, it is finished. It is paid in full. 
Now, you might be sitting here and saying, Adam, what in the world does this happen 2,000 years ago? What does this have to do with me today? First of all, if you are here today and you've got questions about Jesus and about Christianity, listen, and you, might, and you could be sitting here and you could be feeling an, amount, an extreme amount of guilt for maybe things you've done, you've thought about doing, or whatever on down the line. See, your sin is paid in full. And if you trust in the the redemptive work of Christ on the cross, your debt of sin is paid in full. You You don't have to live with that elephant of guilt of sin on your back anymore. Jesus has taken that upon himself. He has died for the forgiveness of your sins. So you might say, Adam, now what do I do about it? Believe. Believe. There is nothing that you and I can do for the forgiveness of sin. There's no amount of time that you can sit in that church pew right now for forgiveness of your sin, to fix your broken relationship with God. There's nothing you can do to stem the pain of the brokenness in your life. It is only what Jesus did on the cross. If you are here and you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you still feel the guilt of your past, and you feel this pressure of being good enough, of going to lots of Bible studies and praying and being the perfect Christian that we all want to be, stop it. Stop. Stop trying to be good. Stop trying to impress Stop trying to earn some kind of brownie points with God and understand that your debt, whatever it might be real or imagined, is paid in full on the cross. You don't have to be good anymore. You don't have to try to impress me or any other kind of Christians. You don't have to endure going to bad Bible studies. And oh, haven't we all been through those? We don't have to give an amount of money. We don't have to serve hours in the church and get, do volunteer in the community. Though Those are all good things. That has nothing to do with our standing with God. Nothing. Because it's finished. Your stress and your guilt is finished. It's paid in full. So this act on the cross, faith family, it's freeing. It's freeing. So trust in that. Trust that you as a child of God, you're not good enough and you never will be. So trust in that. Believe in that. And understand you don't have to be good. Now, there's other implications that James talks about because faith without works is dead. So we're not talking about that you just trust in Jesus and live however you want. But we're also free from that spiritual pressure because our debt is paid in full. So as we walk away from here, faith family, we have a world right now that they are screaming for help. They are crying out for help. We live in a world where people are chasing after everything to pay their debt, their spiritual debt. 
And we as a faith family can, can tell them your debt is paid in full. That on their sin debt receipt, they can have written to tell us die. And they can experience the freedom that only can come in Christ because of the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, we all right now just say thank you as we even sang earlier. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming to this planet. Thank you for denying yourself the glories of heaven that you deserve as God and you became a a human being and that you endured the physical pain of the cross, yes, but endured the spiritual pain of taking all the sin of humanity upon yourself. And Jesus, there's really no way we can properly just say thank you. I pray for anyone here who is has who has not come to know this yet. I pray that your glorious work on the cross would would soften their heart and that they would believe. I pray for those of us who are believers that you would help us to understand that it's finished, that our debt is paid in full, that we don't have to try to impress you and we don't have to try to chase and stress out but that you've done the redemptive work on the cross. And so I pray that you would give us that freedom, but that then you would also use the cross to equip us for good works, that we would make this known, we would make this non-ignorable to our world. Jesus, I pray that you would strip away everything in our lives, strip away everything in our church, to where the cross, the good news of the cross, that it would that'd be what we're all about, that we wouldn't care about anything else but about making you known. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you're in the Kansas City area, we'd love to have you be our guest. We're located at 8200 State Line Road in Leewood, Kansas. Worship services are on Sunday mornings at 1030. To learn more about us, visit our website at leewoodbaptist.com.